Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street trying for a comeback after another down day for stocks. Futures are right now moving higher. Investors gearing up for the latest read on inflation, a data point that could it did indicate the market's next move. We'll see what that one is. Streaming struggles and price hikes. A mixed report from Disney that has that stock popping in the pre-market. Plus, Beijing responds to President Biden's latest executive order targeting key investments in Chinese technology. And then later on, renting in Manhattan just got a lot more expensive. It's Thursday, August 10th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland this morning. Let's get you started and kick off this hour with a check on U.S. equity futures after another down day for the stock market. You can see right now the S&P is implied higher by just around 24 points. The Dow Jones higher by 177 and the Nasdaq higher by a whopping 103 points. Now, investors are gearing up for the latest read on consumer prices, which is due out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, with higher energy prices likely to mean a slight rise from just the same time a month ago. So, again, the estimates right now are for a 3.3% gain year over year after a 3% gain the previous month for that July CPI. Checking in on the bond market, where we could see a lot more activity around that CPI print. Right now, benchmark yields are rising. The 10-year note yield 4.018%, the 2-year note yield 4.80%, and the 30-year long bond a hair below 4.19%. In energy, the oil complex remains in focus. Energy could be a key driver of that inflationary story this time around. You see WTI U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate crude, $84.65. That's up about one-third of 1%. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $87.85 which is about a third of a percent higher. And nat gas prices, which were on a tear yesterday, just about flat on the session, $2.96. Time now for this morning's big money mover, and that's Disney. Silvana Hinao has that story. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Well, that's right. Shares of Disney moving higher in the pre-market after posting its second revenue miss in four quarters after the close yesterday. Now, adjusted earnings, though, did beat estimates by eight cents. Disney getting a huge boost from cost cuts with CEO Bob Iger, telling analysts the company is on track to exceed its initial goal of $5.5 billion in savings. But the bigger story here is streaming. 
Thanks to higher prices, Disney's direct-to-consumer unit reporting a smaller-than-expected loss of just $512 million. That's down from $659 million a quarter ago. Those subscriber numbers did disappoint and rose just 1% from a quarter ago. Now, to offset that slowdown, Dom, Disney plans to raise prices for its streaming services across the board, including Disney+, Plus, which will now cost $13.99 a month without ads. As for parks, Disney continues to struggle in Florida, noting lower attendance, hotel occupancy, and higher cost, Dom. All right, Silvana with the latest there on Disney. Thank you very much for that. Now to a developing story and Beijing responding to President Biden's latest executive order targeting foreign investment in China, notably in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and semiconductors. Eunice Yoon joins me now from Beijing with the latest story there. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Dom. Well, Chinese officials have been criticizing the Biden administration's investment curbs, saying that they uh, gravely are concerned um, about these curbs. And uh, the foreign ministry had said that it's lodging a solemn representation to the United States. Uh, Separately, the Commerce Ministry has also said that it reserves the right to take countermeasures. But what's interesting is that it's held off on announcing any new countermeasures. And the state media has been uh, largely focused on the 45-day comment period to the public. In other words, potentially a time for negotiation before any of these rules kick in. Uh, The thought, of course, is that China has in mind the vulnerability of its economy at the moment and does indeed want to woo foreign investment. Dom? One of the key points here in in, in the ongoing back and forth between the two countries has been this kind of tit for tat response. Is there a sense as to what the Chinese government could hypothetically do in response to this? We know that with regard to certain semiconductor products, the Chinese perhaps responded by saying that they were going to control exports of rare earth minerals that are key to making some of these tech products. Mm -hmm. What exactly could the then response be from an economic or, or, or market standpoint? Well, it's very difficult to say because uh, what people have seen so far is that Chinese target Micron, or at least that was perceived in the U.S. as a a tit-for-tat retaliation by the Chinese for the U.S.'s export curbs on semiconductors. And then, of course, there's, as you mentioned, the the export uh, controls that the Chinese have on uh, two key minerals that are important for the semiconductor industry. However, um, there's a bit of an imbalance here that a lot of the folks in the the chip industry talk about, that the Chinese uh, really don't necessarily have a good way um, from in, in terms of uh, the, the chip industry without hurting themselves and uh, without the situation kind of backfiring on them. That's why uh, unofficially people have talk, talked about uh, certain uh, ways in which the Chinese can get back at American companies, uh, for example, um, in some ways um, launching an investigation or something against an American uh, company. Uh, but uh, what's, what's difficult to say is exactly how that would impact China's economy at a time when, as I mentioned, China is trying to get American investment into this country. All right, Eunice Yoon with the latest there on the U.S.-China relations on that front. Thank you very much. Back on Wall Street, investors are on quite the roller coaster ride in the recent days with the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, and Russell 2000 
coming off their sixth down day out of the last seven. But futures right now are pointing to a possible rebound. So let's bring in Skylar Montgomery Koning, the director of macro strategy at T.S. Lombard, who's looking at what she calls a perfect bearish storm taking shape. Uh, we are not, Skylar, about fear, uncertainty and doubt, but there are reasons to be concerned. Can you take us through what they are? Yeah. So, I mean, when I talk about this perfect bearish storm, I'm thinking about the fixed income market. And we've had, you know, quite a lot of news in the past couple of weeks, right? We've had a BOJ yield curve tweak, a U.S. debt downgrade, increased U.S. issuance, resilient growth, and rising energy prices. And the fact that we've had this kind of perfect storm of bearishness for yields points to some over-exuberance in the move. You know, no doubt some of these factors, like the U.S. issuance increase, that will continue to put upwards pressure on yields. But the medium-term outlook is dependent on the economic and Fed outlook. And for us, we expect a recession and deep Fed cuts, and that's bullish bonds. And I think in particular, when you have these kind of yield surges, there are opportunities to buy the dip in fixed income. We've seen the precedent, right? I mean, everybody thought that it was going to be a straight line higher for yields, given what we saw with the inflationary story over the last year. But it wasn't exactly that. And we kind of moved up past four and a quarter for the 10 year, then fell right back down towards three and a half and are trading right around back at that four level again. Is this the opportunity then for people to say, okay, if it gets above four for the 10 year on the long side of things, you just take the yield and go. And it does it just trade in that range for, for a good while. Yeah, I mean, I think the key point is where are you looking for growth and and the Fed, right? In terms of throughout this year, especially on the 10-year, we've been pretty much range-bound in terms of on the top, there's been some of a limit because of growth. There's this expectation that growth will slow into this year. That's come off a little bit in terms of we entered 2023, everyone expected a recession. It's now been pushed out to 2024, but that kind of growth outlook is still weighing on yields from the top end. Whereas on the bottom, you can't really get a significant rally unless you have Fed cuts. And so we're stuck in this range until we get to that recession point and where the market becomes confident that that will lead to cuts. Um, and so the problem is you're in this range. And so you take opportunities when you get to the top or you get to the bottom and then when you really see the recession coming and when you really see Fed cuts coming, that's when you really take the opportunity to go long, especially at the front end. All right, Skylar, speaking of the front end versus the longer side of things, a, a, a kind of high profile, not really debate, if you will. But, you know, we had Bill Ackman kind of coming out and saying that he is very short the long end of the yield curve. He thinks rates are going to rise significantly for the 30 year. Meanwhile, you've got folks like Warren Buffett saying that they are just going to continue to keep buying and buying and buying short term T-bills because the U.S. government is the only place to be. And when it comes to financial distress in this world, what exactly is the reconciliation and where's the relative value trade? Do we park it in short term side of things or do we think that there is still value on the long side of the yield curve? So I really like steepeners. I think steepeners benefit under two scenarios, right? So steepener benefits if you have a recession and Fed cuts. That's the kind of traditional way you get out of very, very inverted yield curves. And so whenever we've kind of reached minus 100 basis points in two's dens, that's when I've taken the opportunity to add steepeners. And then the second scenario is, is if we do get this continued growth resilience. I think, you know, there's somewhat of a ceiling that's been put in on the two-year point because the Fed is done tightening. And that means, you know, it's a little bit safer to be long the two-year than it was historically. You also have a higher yield there than you do at the 10-year because of this great inversion you've seen. And so I think two's 10 steepeners works quite well then. And in the past week, we've also seen it work 
around these issuance concerns. And we've also seen it work around this kind of longer inflation concern that maybe inflation is more volatile and persistent than we thought. And so, you know, twos, I think it makes much more sense as an absolute long. But if you're worried more, you know, in terms of when are we actually going to get those cuts and recessions, the steepener also makes sense. It's all about relativity. Skylar Montgomery Coning, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. All right, a lot more here to come on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, digging into the red-hot pharma sector and the weight loss drug wars. Plus, much more on Disney and why our next guest is holding on to his $125 price target for the House of Mouse. And then later on, details on Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic milestone launch today. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Futures are looking to bounce back in a big way this morning. So let's see if Europe is following suit or arguably leading the way. Arabile Goumede is in our London newsroom with a trade there. Good morning, Arabile. Yeah, good morning, Dom. You perhaps could say we're leading the way, right? We're certainly seeing some gains this way, and hopefully we'll blow them along the way to uh, that U.S. market then. For now, we are seeing a big gain out of the CAC 40 out in France, 1% there. So to the IBEX 35 out in Spain, a general sense of positivity. Pretty flat, though, out of the FTSE 100. Today, though, out in Germany, we did see Siemens come out with a set of earnings. They're saying that they're going to fully divest out of Siemens Energy, not necessarily doing too well out on that front. But managing, however, to see a robust set of earnings. Despite that, down 5.5% for Siemens. There's also some news on the luxury front. Then we've got news then uh, that Capri, the owners then of Versace, might actually get purchased. They are valued at around 4.1 billion uh, dollars then. So that has meant that there's some movement then in the luxury counters. And this is the big gain. LVMH. Burberry as well as Hermes around 2% to the good then today. So too Montclair, 1.9% uh, on the up on that front. So too Caring and L'Oreal going on to the upside. So you're seeing this positivity filter through. Of course, we are eagerly anticipating still that number out of the U.S. when it comes to inflation. Could that perhaps lead the way when it comes to how the market may trade? Not just today, but indeed headed off into tomorrow. Tom? All right. Our Billy Goumede in London with the latest there on the European trade. Thank you very much. Speaking of Europe, Novo Nordisk reporting second quarter results this morning. The Danish drug maker's profit and revenue fell shy of estimates, but sales of its blockbuster weight loss drug Wigovi are jumping more than fivefold to about one point one billion dollars 
just for that franchise. Novo is raising its full-year guidance for the second time in as many quarters as demand for Wigovi and Ozempic both surge, especially here in the U.S., and it expects to continue to see periodic shortages for those drugs. So let's talk more about Novo Nordisk and the booming market for weight loss and anti-obesity drugs with Emily Field, head of European Pharma Research over at Barclays. Emily, Novo and Eli Lilly both have been on an absolute tear because of a lot of the sentiment around these anti-obesity drugs. How much can you take out of Novo Nordisk's results today and extrapolate into what this means for them in the future? Yeah, thanks for having me. I think the fact that they were able to put up, you know, greater than a billion dollars in a quarter for Wegovy in a supply constrained situation is pretty spectacular. Um, you know, they told us last quarter that they were going to be restricting the starting doses in the United States, which is really the only market with a true commercial launch right now by 50%. So being able to put up those numbers in light of that is pretty stunning and reflective of just very strong underlying demand. Uh, Emily, how how big is the first mover advantage for a company like Novo Nordisk with regard to this latest trend in anti-obesity drugs? Uh, these didn't start off as weight loss drugs. They started off as treatments for other types of perhaps diabetes related situations and everything else. But now they've taken on a whole life of their own as anti-obesity. Is Novo in the best position right now? Yeah, I mean, they were certainly first with Wegovi, um, and you know, both Novo and Eli Lilly have really benefited from continuing to invest in the diabetes and obesity space, where a lot of other companies have scaled back investments. Obesity has just been a really difficult market to crack for the pharma industry over decades. And so the way that we're kind of thinking about it is that it's Novo, Eli Lilly, and then everybody else is just scrambling to catch up because these two companies have just such a very strong first move advantage between the two of them. So we get asked a lot, oh, is it Novo? Is it Lilly? I think both are going to win, and just it will be a number of years before anyone else is even close. Okay, so speaking of Lilly, Munjaro, that's the key franchise over at Lilly with regard to their diabetes treatment that could be used for something anti-obesity as well. What are the expectations in your mind with regard to how that dynamic plays out? You mentioned that both can win, but Eli Lilly and Novo are both trading at record highs or just near that right now because of this optimism. Is Eli Lilly also going to be as well positioned as Novo, given Munjaro? Yeah, I mean, at least for the near term, it's almost going to come down to who can make it fast enough, just because both of the companies cannot meet the underlying demand. And however, the other big news for Novo this week was, and what gives them maybe a little bit of an advantage from a commercial payer perspective in the near term, is they had just phenomenal results for the select study this week. And so in very simple terms, what that study is showing is that you're not only losing weight when you take a drug like Wigovi, you have a 20% less chance of getting a heart attack or a stroke if you've already had one. And so that's real money that payers will be able to save. And Novo with Wigovi had their cardiovascular benefits trial readout before Lily. Lily's got one going on. So it's theirs is probably going to work too. But um, we think that Novo having this cardiovascular tangible results is really going to help them get insurers to pay for the drug. All right. That's been the, 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 the huge optimism case around it over the last couple of days. Emily, before we let you go, you mentioned it's Novo, Eli, and then everybody else. Who amongst the everybody else could be that catch up trade if you missed Novo or Eli Lilly? 
Yeah, so the, we get asked that a lot. Pfizer's not quite in phase three yet with an oral compound that they uh, have at sort of the front of their pipeline. But if this is just such a hot area that anytime you see a company with any clinical data, you know, Amgen had phase one data in a very small number of patients that people got really excited about last year. Now, it takes a long time to get from phase one to get to an FDA approved drug. But I think that it's certainly an area where well, I cover AstraZeneca as well. They're being fully engaged in an earlier pipeline in obesity as well. So I think it's, it's going to be some time before we have more data points from kind of who's really going to be out there in the commercial market. So for the time being, if you want to play obesity, I focus on Novo and Lilly. All right. Emily Field with the trade in anti-obesity over at Barclays. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Ahead on the show, the average Manhattan rent just did something for the first time ever and likely pricing out millions of folks along the way. Our Robert Frank is here with that story coming up. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers. We've got Applovin. Those shares are surging double digits on strong second quarter results and upbeat third quarter revenue guidance. The software company citing the rollout of its newest advertising product as a key driver for the positive quarter. Applovin shares up 24 percent. Shares of Sonos also popping in the pre-market trade after the audio equipment company topped Q3 earnings and revenue estimates and narrowed the range of its full year outlook. Management noting on the call last night that its brand and product portfolios continue to perform well amid ongoing market share gains in both the U.S. and Europe, despite a challenging environment for consumer electronics. So Sono shares up roughly 7.5%. And then Illumina shares are falling after the biotech company cut its annual revenue forecast due to a potential slowdown in demand for its genetic testing tools and diagnostics products. Illumina warning of cautious consumer spending and a delayed recovery in China. Those shares off nearly 6% pre-market. Turning now to the real estate side of things, and one of the priciest cities in the country just got a little bit more out of reach for many Americans. Robert Frank joins me now with the latest there. Robert, it's about our neighbor right across the Hudson River. That's right, Dom. Uh, The average rent for a Manhattan apartment is now $5,600. That is a brand new record. Median rents also hitting a new record along with price per square foot. In fact, you look at every single measure in Manhattan rents right now hitting an all-time record in July. Now, much of the U.S. is seeing rents flatten or decline. Manhattan has actually seen records in four of the past five months. Average rents are now 30 percent higher than pre-pandemic. And this despite the fact that Manhattan has a smaller population than 2019 And, of course, we know that offices are still at a 48 percent occupancy rate due to that remote work. Now, adding to the mystery of these high rents is that inventory in July actually rose by 11 percent over last year. Now, with more supply, you'd think that rents should be coming down, but they're not. Now, there is one hopeful sign for renters and, of course, the Fed. 
and that is that new leases in July fell 6% over last year. So while prices keep rising, there are signs that renters have finally hit their limit when it comes to price and affordability, and they may be going elsewhere. But August, August is typically the peak rental month with back-to-school renters. So Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel saying that we're going to expect another month of records in August, then maybe finally a flattening out or even decline in the fall. But, Dom, they've been saying this for at least six months, that we're finally going to get a decline, and they just keep going up. Robert, this is interesting because it doesn't matter what market you're in, real estate, stocks, bonds, or anything else. Oftentimes, the, the experts and the, the people who transact in those markets say that when you get these kinds of cross currents, conflicting type data, it indicates a market in transition. Is this a scenario where we could see a bit of a steeper fall off? I, I only think about it in context of I, I kick myself every time I didn't buy Manhattan real estate in the wake of the pandemic. I thought to myself, it has to come back, and it did come back in a very sharp way. But all of these different cross currents, they're basically telling me that there's a lot of opacity, if you will, in, in prices right now. I don't know exactly what goes into them. Yeah, and, and people really don't know what's going into these record highs. And you're right, there are a lot of cross currents. You know, on the one hand, we have a lower population Manhattan. We have the rise of remote work. Offices are still half empty. You would think that would be reflected in the rental market, and it's just not. And part of the reason is that Airbnb, there are a lot of units that have been taken off the rental market for Airbnb. Rent price controls have created a situation where there's an incentive now for landlords to sort of warehouse apartments that need a lot of renovation rather than rent them. And the fact that high interest rates are causing people to sort of hold on to their apartments and not put them to sale. So the sales market is seeing very low inventory and low sales, and a lot of those would-be buyers are camping out in the rental market. So those are some of the reasons. But broadly, you're right, it is a bit baffling and opaque of a market as to why a city that has a lower population than 2019 has rents that are 30% higher. Baffling, but Robert Frank's there to help us sort through it all. Robert, thank you very much. We'll see you later on. Thanks, Straight ahead on the show, sticking with the high end of things and a major M&A deal that's taking shape in the luxury end of the market. We'll have that story coming up. We'll be right back. It's 531 Eastern Time right here in New York, and there's still a lot ahead on Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's still on deck. A new hope for stocks trying to rebound after another rough session for Wall Street. Investors looking ahead to that key July CPI report due out in just a few hours. Iger strikes back. Disney moving ahead and higher ahead of the opening bell, despite a mixed report in streaming subscriber growth slowdowns. Nothing a few price hikes can't fix. We'll dig into that. And return of the tourist. China unveiling yet another stimulus measure, hoping to boost spending in its struggling consumer market. Global travel and luxury stocks are popping. It's Thursday, August 10th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. equity futures, which are bid right now, at least for the time being. The Dow Jones implied higher by roughly 173 points. The S&P higher by 24 and the Nasdaq higher by just about 100 at this stage right now. Now, get your popcorn ready. We're just about three hours away from the July Consumer Price Index data 
It's likely to show the pace of price increases is easing, but maybe not enough to get the Fed to declare mission accomplished in its rate hiking campaign. Headline CPI is forecast to have risen by two tenths of one percent month over month, which would be the same increase as June, but 3.3 percent on an annual basis, which would be the first rise in prices in a year, likely driven on a headline basis by higher gasoline prices. Let's get more insight now from Stephen Whiting, chief investment strategist and chief economist at City Global Wealth. Uh, Stephen, we often turn to you for these types of issues with regard to the macro picture. How important you, is this CPI data to the overall Fed and economic narrative, especially seeing is how inflation is certainly not gone? I just filled up earlier this week and it definitely cost me a lot more to fill up my car than it did a year ago. It's quite important to the Federal Reserve, which is continuing to look back at inflation over the last couple of years uh, to attenuate policy going forward. So when you think about what Chairman Powell just said at the last FOMC meeting was very different from the prior one when he looked at the year ahead. You've heard it from other Fed officials, uh, including the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, for example, that if, if inflation was convincingly headed down uh, in the coming year, that monetary policy need not stay as restrictive. Now, again, that is very much the bull or the dovish case uh, and uh, how we respond over the next few months to this, whether or not this is a more persistent inflation, uh, is uh, still the ongoing issue. Uh, the stock market is taking great comfort from the drop that we've had in headline inflation from nine to three. We still think that by the end of the year, headline inflation will be a little bit higher, three and a half percent. But what's happened with monetary policy, this dramatic turnaround from where we were in 2020 and 2021, uh, with a zero policy rate with QE, uh, it's really setting the stage, I think, for inflation to dip to two and a half on CPI uh, or possibly below if the Federal Reserve doesn't ease out in 2024. That's the big picture. So, so OK, if that's the case, that that's not terrible. It also feels like this economy could be resilient enough to avoid a pretty much hard landing recession type scenario. Is then the relationship is the market, I guess the question is, is the market priced for perfection, given what we've seen right now with the economic data? Is it setting itself up for perhaps a disappointment if the, that inflation or economic data starts to even somewhat disappoint in the coming months? Well, Dom, I don't think that it's perfection, given the fact that, uh, you know, seven stocks have generated more than 40 percent of the global return this year. But it's gone a lot further in that direction. And it's much more possible, again, as soft landing views have become more predominant in the last few months, um, that any uh, troubling data point, um, if the CPI is a bit hot for a single month, which would mean very little to the big picture I outlined, that that could be the case, that we could have setbacks. Now that, again, we have priced in a much stronger case for soft landing. Now, there's been great news, real incomes are rising again, going from a drag of 9% on consumer income to this in the threes has been a big help. We don't have every part of the world economy or the American economy falling at the same time. It's been very supportive. You can see consumer confidence measures start to come off recessionary lows, and they were there already, right? Now that we have uh, inflation diminishing. Uh, but it is not the kind of kind of story now where we've had this rally and we priced in this greater soft landing where, where we're completely out of the woods. In fact, the risks of market disappointment have risen some. 
as this good news is unfolded. But it's still very good news. All right. Still good news for sure. Stephen Whiting at City. Thank you very much, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Silvana, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Good morning to you. All right. Well, Tapestry, that's the parent company of Coach and Kate Spade, is reportedly in talks to buy Capri Holdings. That's the parent company of Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo and Versace. According to The Wall Street Journal, the deal could become official as soon as today and value and value Capri around nine billion dollars. Shares in the pre-market soaring 32 percent. The SEC says it plans to appeal part of a judge's ruling that stated the regulator does not have the authority to oversee certain sales of Ripple's cryptocurrency XRP. The court decision last month was seen as a huge boost for crypto firms when it comes to oversight and at the time sent shares of companies like Coinbase and Marathon Digital surging. This morning, shares are They're all higher in the pre-market as well. All right. And Virgin Galactic is set to launch its first private space tourist into the skies today during its second ever commercial space flight. The move caps nearly 20 years of development and allows Virgin to finally start clearing its backlog of roughly 800 ticket holders who have been waiting for a suborbital ride. Passengers on today's flight include an 80-year-old former British Olympian and a mother and daughter who won their tickets at a charity auction. A webcast of the flight is set to begin at 11 a.m. Eastern time, Dom. Dom, All would right. you do it? I, you know what? I don't need to be a first mover when it comes to space <laughs> travel. I think I'll wait for the commercial development to really take hold. I'm with you. I would do it, though. I definitely would. All right. Thanks very much, Silvana. Yeah. Now, well, time now for your big money movers, and one of them is Disney. Shares rising despite a mixed quarter that saw earnings beat, but revenue come in just shy of estimates for the second time in four quarters. Disney also reported about 10 million fewer Disney Plus subscribers than analysts had expected consensus. Uh, the key takeaway from the quarter is streaming, as the media giant looks to reset that part of its business through news price hikes, a password sharing crackdown similar to Netflix's. Also, it's recently announced partnership between ESPN and Penn Entertainment's sportsbook franchise. CEO Bob Iker doubling down on the economics of streaming during last night's conference call, saying it is a top priority for Disney management. Since my return, we've reset the whole business around economics designed to deliver significant, sustained profitability. We're prioritizing the strength of our brands and franchises. We're rationalizing the volume of content we make, what we spend, and what markets we invest in. We're deploying the technology necessary to both improve the user experience as well as the economics of this business. All right, for more on the economics of this business, let's bring in Jason Bazinet, media entertainment analyst over at Citigroup. Uh, Jason, the, the stock reaction maybe tells you a little bit about just what the verdict is. There is optimism. Is there as much optimism about Disney, given what you heard last night, as there should be? I don't know if there's a lot of optimism out there. I mean, I, I would describe the sentiment on Disney stock as probably the worst it's been in 20 years, and it really has to do with big structural issues. You know, what is the future of Hulu? What is the future of ESPN? And then there's and then there's concerns about cyclical risks in the parks. And so until we get clarity, at least on those first two issues, you know, we're just sort of muddling through quarter to quarter. And, you know, the stock will react to the earnings. But those are the big 
the two big elephants in the room. I mean, you're right, because on a year to day basis, that stock is pretty much flat. I mean, I think it's up a couple hundred, a couple hundred basis mm-hmm. points, maybe two, three percent, something like that. But last night's call did at least give some semblance of 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 positivity to this idea that the streaming business is a focus for profitability, the, the, the losses narrowed and that the trajectory might be right. Is the price hike campaign one that you think is the right one for Disney Plus? It is the right one for Disney Plus. It's right for the overall industry. I keep this very simple. The average linear pay TV bill is $105 a month. There isn't a single streaming service out there that costs $20 a month, and most consumers don't have five of these services. So all of the introductory, very low-end prices to drive subgrowth are coming to an end, and we're getting back to more normalized pricing. The other interesting facet of this is they didn't take prices up on the ad-supported tier, which speaks volumes to where Disney wants to direct the consumer to go in and take the product with ads um, because they're going to generate a lot more revenue on that front with all the the better pricing that comes with, you know, web-based uh, advertising as opposed to linear. All right. So, Jason, the streaming side is obviously a key focus here. You, we also mentioned the park side of the business. It, it's been a Disney's been the high profile target of a political kind of tug of war that's developing right now. Maybe even a cultural war, if you want to call it that in America. The park attendance numbers and the park results, while they did beat some analyst estimates, are still showing some signs of a slowdown. How much do you think Disney is going to either benefit from a rebound or perhaps be dragged lower by a continued slowdown in that park side of the business? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the, the street was very nervous about uh, the, the park numbers, and you rightly point out that Mr. Iger was sort of signaling some softening. I'll tell you, this is very, very strange to me because Disney's attendance numbers at Disney World uh, you know, last fiscal year were 20% below 2019 levels. And a lot of the things that Mr. Iger highlights, like lower hotel tax receipts in some of these key uh, counties inside Florida, is technically true, but a red herring because we were coming off record levels of hotel receipts. And so he's sort of signaling that there is going to be a slowdown at Disney World. But I I do sort of wonder if it's company specific, right, as opposed to something that that is really more macro based. And that, that sort of hints at that cultural issue that you alluded to. Uh, I don't know, Jason. All I know is I, I was there with my family back in February, and the place was jam-packed, <laughs> lines up the wazoo. I don't even know how to, I, Anyway, Jason, thank you very much. I appreciate the thoughts there. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate it, and good luck with the rest of the analysis. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, Penn Entertainment is revealing new details about its deal to sell Barstool Sports back to its outspoken founder, Dave Portnoy. You've seen it here on CNBC. Also, the massive loss to be booked in the process. We are back with that Penn ESPN Barstool story after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. We've got Truist downgrading Penn Entertainment to a hole from a prior buy. The bank notes that while the stock's upside could be material following that big ESPN deal, it says it's more of a show-me type story and recommends waiting before adding to positions. Penn right now down about 1% pre-market. And then Oppenheimer is naming Fresh Pet a top pick and raising its target price to 100 bucks a share. Opco says it is increasingly confident in management's ability to deliver 
on top and bottom line target numbers. The firm adds its views high short interest in the stock and ongoing investor skepticism as net positive. So keep an eye on Fresh Pet, which is thinly traded pre-market. Now, a number of upgrades for Roblox following yesterday's massive stock sell-off. Wedbush moving it to a buy rating and Morgan Stanley moving it to a hold. Morgan Stanley says with the move, the stock now fairly reflects the near-term headwinds against longer-term opportunities for growth. Roblox shares just down 20% for the week to date period. Time now for your global briefing. Today, it's all about China. The country's ambassador to Washington, D.C., warning that Beijing will retaliate if the U.S. follows through on its new executive order and bans investments into some of China's quantum computing, advanced microchip and artificial intelligence industries. Speaking at the Aspen Security Forum, the ambassador says China will not make provocations, but also won't stay silent. And getting set for a tourism spending boom, shares of Asia travel stocks and luxury stocks are on the move after China's tourism ministry said the country is set to resume outbound group travel to 78 countries, including the U.S., the U.K., Japan and South Korea. The move, which takes effect immediately, comes after China closed its borders for nearly three years and marks the first time in six years that China is allowing group tours to South Korea. And we're watching Chinese Internet stocks as those companies rush to purchase NVIDIA's chips used for building generative AI systems amid fears of new export controls by the U.S. government. Among the names making orders worth $1 billion worth of 800 AI processors are Baidu, ByteDance, Tencent, Alibaba, with those companies also purchasing $4 billion worth of graphics processing products for a 2024 delivery date. Now ahead, the one word every investor needs to know, and Pope Francis weighs in on the artificial intelligence boom as well. We'll have that coming right up. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. At least 36 people have died, and more than 270 structures have been damaged in a devastating Maui wildfire. Hawaii's acting governor says the full extent of the damage may not be known for weeks or even months. Ecuador presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio was killed at a campaign event yesterday. A surging violence due to drug trafficking plagues that country. Six people have been arrested in connection with that crime. Pope Francis is warning against the dangers of artificial intelligence, saying it has, quote unquote, disruptive possibilities and ambivalent effects to society and that those who develop or use AI must do so responsibly. Occidental Petroleum appointing Sunil Matthew as its new chief financial officer, marking another C-suite shakeup for the company within a three-year span. Matthew replaces Rob Peterson, who was appointed in 2020 to handle Occidental's massive $40 billion debt load. Shares of Wynn Resorts rising after second quarter results came in above estimates due to strength in its Las Vegas and Macau locations. And David Portnoy is once again the owner of Barstool Sports after buying it back from Penn Entertainment for $1. Yes, $1. Penn will have the right to 50% of the gross proceeds if Portnoy sells or monetizes Barstool Sports in the future. So here's what to watch today. July's Consumer Price Index, CPI, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, along with initial weekly jobless claims. We've also got a string of earnings from key names like Alibaba, also Krispy Kreme, and Six Flags, amongst others. 
and a pair of Fed speeches this afternoon from Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, also Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker. Let's get you ready for the trading day ahead with a final check on the markets right now. Futures are again our bid. You can see the Dow Jones implied higher by roughly 180 points, the S&P by 25 and the Nasdaq higher by 108. Now, if you take a look at the trade so far this year, growth versus value, no doubt growth has been winning out. You can see here the ETF that tracks growth, the ticker IWF up 28 percent, value up about 6 percent. That gap is just slightly narrowing a bit. It's still pretty wide, though, near the widest point for the year. But are things changing? Check out a value sector like energy versus a growth sector like tech. Over the last month, we've seen now energy start to outperform technology on that more near to medium term basis. Could a reversal be happening right now? And then also, if you want another sign that maybe that momentum trade is slowing down for technology, check out the semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH, the Vanek Vectors one. It's up about maybe 1% of the pre-market trade, and over the last year, up 27%. But as you can see here, it closed below its 50-day moving average for the first time going all the way back to mid-May. So could there be a reversal in the making right now? We don't know, but let's bring in Greg Sarian. He's the CEO and founder of 213 Strategic Partners. Greg, I've noted some of the maybe momentum indicators right now. Are you starting to see some signs that maybe we're due for a cooling off period in the stock market? Good morning, Dom. First of all, thank you for having me back. And we are absolutely entering a challenging time seasonally in markets. We've got inflation prints. We've got Jackson Hole coming up at the end of the month in a void of earnings. So in the near term, we could certainly see a pullback. But our view, Dom, is that markets are forward-looking indicators and already pricing in the fact the Fed is likely, if not done, nearing its done its hiking cycle and seeing earnings being a little bit more resilient. So our view is we're, we're cautiously optimistic uh, in the back end of this year, and investors need to be tactical and patient maybe over the next six to eight weeks. So if that's the case, Greg, where do you put stuff in your shopping list? What, what, what are the new positions? What do you add to? What do you initiate? Right. So a, a few things. First of all, you noted the very narrow leadership we've seen in the market so far with these six mega tech, mega cap uh, tech titans driving almost 100 percent of the return of the markets. Over the last four or five weeks, we've seen this broadening out in markets. We're starting to see other sectors in the value style, uh, small caps, international. We believe that trend is going to continue. We believe you're going to see more breadth. We don't necessarily think the tech stocks are going to crater or, or have a, a nosedive, but we do believe you're going to see more broadening out in other sectors of the market in a catch-up trade, if you will. We also think investors should be locking in duration. High-quality muni bond ladders right now paying over 3.5%. That's a 5% or north of 5% equivalent for those in the highest marginal bracket. All right. And Greg, just a few moments left here. What's your place to stay away from? We'd be very cautious chasing these technology names at these levels. Um, Again, I think there's better values, more opportunities elsewhere. And just be careful not to chase that that trade. All right. Stay away from technology for the time being. Check out other parts of the market. Greg Sarian, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much, sir. All right, let's get a check on the markets right now. We are seeing futures bid. The Dow Jones implied higher by just about 180 points. The S&P higher by about 25 points. The Nasdaq higher by 110. We've got key CPI data coming out in just two and a half or so hours from now. 
Squawk Box will pick up the coverage. They come up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.